Now, you might have heard the previous episode, the previous talk, and you might have just thought, oh, he just inferred we can easily rewrite the script, that if we don't like the story we're living, we can just sprinkle in some new characters, change the scenery, add a few power-ups, and then move forward. Well, not so fast. You can't create a script overnight. Not a good one, anyway. Here's what I mean. Every few months, someone asks me, how long does it take to write a book? Now, as you know, if you've been around here any length of time at all, you know that I I write a lot. We churn out a lot of content. In fact, with Oily App Plus, one of the companies that I'm involved with, we've cranked out a short book every single month for all of 2019 with the goal of doing 10. I know that leaves two months off, but 10 for this entire year. And there are other books that are on the website, Jenkins.tv, where I post this podcast. Anyway, so, so people say, well, how long does it take to write one? Well, what do you mean, I ask? How many hours or days? Or, or what do you do? Do you just sit down and start until it's done? Or, well, when I studied writing as an English major at Sanford University, I learned that Jack Kerouac famously hammered out On the Road, a novel which defined an entire generation in three weeks on a continuous reel of paper just on the typewriter. Now that approach, it generally doesn't leave space for reflection, for editing, and for course corrections, which are things that life requires that hacked out novels might not. I usually tell people, it just takes what it takes. Then I explain, I work best when I can jump into the project and stay in it, kind of getting lost inside the words and the pages. Rescripting your story, your life, is much the same. Unwriting old rules and thinking patterns, determining what responses are needed as opposed to those which are no longer needed, adjusting your soul memory like we discussed in the previous episode, none of those are instant fixes. So let me pull back the curtain, share with you a piece of my story, and highlight what I mean about rewriting your own story and letting it take the time it takes. And I tell you, this is about to get a little bit raw. Okay, so take you inside of a counseling situation. What are you seeing about yourself? Let's label it. Not to limit you and box you in, but to get a starting point. Truth is freedom. If we can define where we've been, we can always navigate from there to where we're designed to be. I was sitting in my attic office and I was speaking to a life coach via Zoom. For the previous few weeks, we'd walk through the hurtful parts of my story. Like you and I discussed in the previous talk, some of those parts were the results of things that had been done to me, Some of them, many of them, were the results of my own actions. Either way, though, I was responsible to take stock of where I was, own my story, and step forward responsibly. We were beginning to look at what moving forward looked like. Well, I answered him quickly. I began pushing through the list of things I was seeing about myself immediately. Words that usually scared me rolled readily from my tongue. After a few moments, I concluded, I don't know of anything else. I've laid it all out there. I can't think of anything I've omitted. Addiction, he offered. You haven't mentioned the word addiction. I would like you to explore that. It maybe, just maybe, you need to look at yourself in the mirror and add this one too. I am an addict. Now, when he mentioned addiction, I began to see everything about my story through a new lens. You see, I understand what addiction looks like. No, I hadn't seen it in myself, but I had clearly seen this one crystal clear in others. For almost a decade, I worked with addicts, the kind you conjure in your head when you hear the word addiction. The people hooked on heroin, LSD, marijuana, and other drugs. 
alcoholics, chain smokers. It's easy to look at them and say, oh yeah, that, that right there is an addict. I watched person after person, or let's just label it what it is, addict after addict, walk through the door of various transitional facilities, housing facilities, and shelters where I worked for almost a decade. Residents generally move through the first 30 days of the program, phase one, without any incident at all. They found gainful employment. They reconnected with, with families who became confident enough in their progress to begin visiting them on the first and third Sundays of the month. They began laughing and smiling and speaking about the future in hope-filled ways. Then, many times on the very night they received their first paycheck, they threw it all away for a night of some combo of sex, drugs, and alcohol. It's almost as if they became a completely different person a person seeking to sabotage their hopes and dreams rather than fulfill them. It was as if they had their own unwritten rules that subconsciously tossed them into the bad outcome script, no matter how hard they fought for the good outcome version. I worked in the field long enough to watch the same people recycle themselves through different programs. Like a revolving door or a merry-go-round, it was a predictable loop that we could chart. Like check in to one ministry center or rehab for help, make meaningful progress, crash out. Come to the senses and decide you want to go to another facility. Make more significant meaningful progress that's visible in short order, yet again, crash out. Rinse, dry, repeat, entire cycle. It was surreal. I listened to many of their stories firsthand the very hour they wandered through our front doors. What, what brings you here? I often ask. Wow, um, things have got to change and this time they will. I'm, I must jump off this roller coaster. Many then told me about the seemingly endless rinse and repeat cycle they were on. Now for sure, many of them did change. Their lives were radically transformed, but many of them didn't. Their lives weren't altered in the least. Eventually, four or five years down the road, some of that second group came back to our program many times forgetting they had even ever been there before. They had made the loop through that many transitional housing facilities and shelters through our entire city. Now that cycle could continue almost indefinitely, especially with so many residential recovery centers in our city, and when it did, it always baffled me. Why, why would the couple, living on the family wing of that rehab program that I ran for seven years, why would they choose to get high again? They knew that a failed drug test would most likely mean they would lose custody of their kids for good, and then at least one of them might very well go to jail. Uh, why would this man, who finally held a steady job, guaranteed on-time transportation to and from work each day, and a forced savings plan which ensured he would graduate our program with $5,000 to $7,000 in the bank for future expenses to begin his life anew, why would he just toss it away to live on someone's couch just so that he could drink one or two beers every night after work? I watched the cycle of devastation claim person after person, and for years, I tried to figure out why they acted like they did, why some internal switch flipped, and they suddenly began acting, well, dangerously. I decided the issues weren't practical at all. That, that is, they weren't issues that were like, oh, if I could just explain to them on paper or rationalize with them, illuminating the path forward, they would just get it and change. No, I, I had tried that before. I decided that some of the issues probably centered around internal rules people created. Rules that we discussed in a previous episode like, uh, I'm not worthy of success. I'm not worthy of meaningful progress. I'll never get ahead. 
I decided some of the issues were cover-ups for hidden pain. That they were coping mechanisms to block out sounds of fireworks or backfiring engines or some sort of other present thing that was being misperceived in light of the past. In other words, the issues were deep. Now, I, I used to think addiction was a fruit, th that it was simply a bad choice on the outside that people made. Turns out, though, it's not. And I, I sketched out this picture. I'm going to put it in the show notes for you where you can see it, where it says addiction is a root. It's deeper, and the fruit is the stuff that we usually see manifest. Now, let me explain that. You see, we, we could teach people about relationships, purpose, emotional health, or any other thing that we saw manifest in life. Uh, we could instruct them on the healthy version of all of those things, but those are all fruits. That, that is, those are all symptoms, they're results of our hearts being attached to the right place. When our hearts are whole, relationships work, and we find purpose, and we're emotionally stable, and we don't self-sabotage, and, and we have enough. Now think back to that thermostat thermometer analogy that I discussed a few talks ago. That's what this is. I assumed addiction was simply one of those bad fruits that people needed to be taught about, and if they only knew better, then they could do better. That, that's what it seemed like to me. But addiction is a root issue, not a fruit issue. To kill it, you've got to destroy the roots, not just keep plucking off bad fruit. And unless the stuff inside changes, the fruit that you see, chronic silkness, Financial lack, self-sabotage, relational strife, lack of purpose, emotional volatility, all of that stuff, all of that fruit, it always returns. It might take a few weeks, like the first paycheck, or it might take a few years. Uh, the example here would be recycling yourself back to the same rehab you've already been doing, not even remembering that you've been there. But whatever the case, no matter how long it took, that fruit always returns. To change the fruit, you've got to deal with the root. Now. I also assume this. I assume that addiction centers, um, that addiction itself, that it is focused around or gathered around substance abuse or that it's gathered around, it's clumped around porn. But addiction, that root of addiction, it centers to other things. It connects to other soil as well. Here's really kind of my working definition. Addiction happens when we attach our hearts for whatever reason to the wrong place and when we do that, bad fruit always emerges. Let, let me just kind of reread it to you. Addiction happens when we attach our hearts, for whatever reason, to the wrong place. And when we do that, bad fruit is always the result. So in order to see meaningful fruit grow in a consistent way in our life, we've got to attach our heart to the right place. Now, all of that said, I'd seen addiction firsthand. I'd watched some amazing stories of redemption and recovery unfold right before my eyes with stories that, man, would just, uh, I'll tell them on here, on this podcast sometime, that, that would just radically surprise and amaze you. And at the same time, on the other hand, I've watched people choose lives of sheer hell. I even wrote the 12-step curriculum that we used at The Village and shot an entire video series for it that you can download on the website at thenextbeststep.info. I'll put a link to that in the show notes where you can get access to that. Now, all that said, though I never made the connection between what I taught and what I lived before hearing the label addict during that Zoom counseling session, I suddenly saw something new and I could see the same patterns in my own life. What I realized was that my heart had been attached to the wrong things. And when I look back at my life through the lens of addiction, 
really trying to interpret it in light of that definition that addiction happens when we attach our heart for whatever reason to the wrong place and when we do that bad fruit always emerges when i look back through that lens things made complete sense so let, let me just give you a few bullet points in the same way that those addicts the ones that i helped before would go to extreme measures to find their high so also would i now at this point in my story i had still had to determine precisely what my drug was I knew life had been spinning out of control and you know I was holding things together well on the surface but internally and underground was completely sinking maybe next bullet point in the same way those addicts that I helped had spurned family and friends sacrificing them on the altar of their addiction so also had I in the same way those addicts sacrificed their health and sleep and rest abusing their physical bodies to chase their addiction so also had I in the same way those addicts covered up their actions and stole in order to fuel an addiction, I had done the exact same thing. In the same way every addict that I ever met who was stuck in their addiction denied having a problem, goodness, so also had I. Now, I've mentioned it before, for years, this is so crazy, such an odd part of my story, but I actually wondered if I might end up somewhere like those addicts, walking those halls, attending those classes, which were because I wrote them. They were, they were my classes. Getting shuttled to and from work every day, having a chance to see my kids every 14 days in two to four hour time blocks or while on a weekend pass as I spent the rest of my time working on the deeper issues. Issues at the time that I couldn't even fathom were there. Anyway, on that Zoom call, go to some meetings for addicts, my coach told me. Get online and see what's out there in your area for people that have struggled with the things that you've struggled with. Now, it's amazing what you can do with a label like addict when you're not afraid to confront the hard truth about yourself. And looking at my story, I realized I had consistently chased two things. Number one, I had chased driving ministry forward. Whether it was the church where I was on staff, the nonprofits where I worked, or some other project to which I was committed, I was committed to pushing things forward. Number two, I was committed to pleasing my wife or... Maybe a better way to say it was keep her appeased. That is, that is, don't rock the boat, save the peace. Now, on the first count, let me talk about both. It was the ministry and the perceived success of it that fueled my ego, which provided so much the personal validation that I craved. And get this, it was acceptable to work long hours there because it was, like, and I just kind of do this in air quotes, it was the Lord's work. I could always rationalize that life and death issues, that eternity and souls, that those were at stake. One of my friends, as he resigned from our ministry years ago, it was about a decade ago, he actually told me, he said, I, I can't work anymore. And, and then he added, after this little pause without being asked, he said, you do the right things, but you often do them in the wrong way. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. I thought back, shortcuts, long hours, insane schedules, control, bulldozing people so I could finish my latest project. That summarized the first point above perfectly. Drive ministry forward, whatever the cost. I was doing great work, but I managed it just like an addict. Now, on the second count, I had to come to terms with the fact that I desperately wanted my wife to respect me, to think I was valuable, to believe there was greatness in me. I lied and covered up to avoid arguments with her that I knew we would have if I owned my unsuccess, my failures, or my inability to provide something she wanted. I continued my charades, in large part, to create a sense of security and even abundance for her. I only looked to her for years of validation, which, now this is just in my mind, I never received. 
As a result, when she was pleased with me, I was ecstatic on cloud nine, and when she was displeased, I was actually depressed. As a result, because of that, I did everything I could do to keep her pleased with me, even if it was a fake pleased, and even if it was measured against an impossible standard. Now, in some sense, I think all men want to please their wives. I'm convinced that women have no idea how much shame they inflict on their men with eye rolls, bickering, and verbal reminders that he doesn't measure up. And though I felt the tension that's common to most men, it doesn't excuse it, and I went too far in trying to impress my woman. Well, those, those two things, those were my highs. They brought me a sense of value and purpose and meaning. They were my means of escape. They covered the hurts and past that filled my emotional tank. Now, all that said, I attended a Celebrate Recovery meeting. And I remember as I left that first meeting, one of the leaders, he came over to me to greet me and handed me a small book to take home and read. I flipped through it while I was grilling out burgers one evening, and then I finished it reading it as I sat post-dinner on our front porch. I learned that, get this, two-thirds of the participants in Celebrate Recovery, they, they called it CR there. They actually don't have a substance abuse or chemical addiction at all. Most of them are just seeking total wholeness to see radical grace infuse their life in a way nothing else in the world can and, and now notably, most of the issues that they had are related to, grasp this, emotional wholeness. That's the one area I was beginning to learn is a significant one that we often overlook. Now, although that's not the impression that we have of addiction, that's the reality. Many of us, many of us attach our hearts to the wrong things in large part because of past hurts, past pains that we're seeking to soothe, and we live from these undisclosed hidden rules like we talked about in a previous episode, and we live from those places in order to avoid pain, and then we cover that pain with addictions, with false fillers, which can never eliminate the avoid. And then remember that definition that I talked about of addiction. Addiction, it happens when we attach our hearts for whatever reason, whether it's something noble, at least in our mind it's noble, or whether it's to escape. It happens when we attach our heart to the wrong place, and when we do that, bad fruit is always the result. That bad fruit, and it returns and continues returning just perennially every single year. I can't tell you how many times I actually killed bad fruit in my life. This is it. I repeatedly told myself um, to use the language from the title of the book that I've taken a lot of these notes for, the Claim Your Freedom book uh, that I wrote with the Oily App guys. Like I would say, like I'm finally free. And that was the exact language I would use. Maybe you've been there too, but the truth is I wasn't free. Not, not for long. Often, seemingly out of nowhere, bad fruit returned. And then when it did, it often grew back stronger and bigger, making it even more difficult to pluck off the next time. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've experienced the exact same thing. At some point, it made me think. It was like, dang. Maybe I'm just a bad tree because trees bear fruit according to what kind of tree they are. So good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. So if bad fruit keeps returning, you know, I even read Bible verses and you know in the New Testament where Jesus explained that it's seemingly impossible for good trees to bear bad fruit. So if there's bad fruit, what did that make me according to verses like Matthew 7, 17 through 20? Now, in the end, maybe just like a side note here, 
I looked out the window of my attic and across the backyard, and I decided that Jesus must have been speaking in generalities. The best tree at my house occasionally produced a just a bad apple. And the most diseased tree that I had, it occasionally exhibited a good one. So Jesus was looking, I think, at the overall trajectory, the thing that the tree is known by, not the occasional outlier. And his little brother later wrote in James 3.2 that we all stumble. So that's the issue is what's the trajectory over and over of, of the life. Anyway, the CR leader who gave me the book also directed me to an info table where they kept a dozen or more green sheets. And they were actually green Xeroxed sheets. Each one, eight and a half by 11, it detailed a specific addiction issue. Or to use the definition that I've given you, it was an incorrect heart attachment. Those pages contained info on everything from, now, now grasp this, codependency to alcoholism, to having been raised in a dysfunctional family, to eating disorders, to mental health issues, to really just about anything else you could brainstorm. Each sheet listed both symptoms and possible solutions. There were, there were 20 or more of them. And every solution required really going beneath the surface, heading into the dirt, and digging super deep. Um, if you look in the show notes, I've got another graphic that highlights this fruit root issue to where you can just outline it. And then I show you how it applies to me with some of the same fruits, you know, yelling, dishonesty, pride, posturing um, as fruits. But you look under the surface at the roots and you see that it's that deeper work that leads to the transformation. And that's what those green sheets we're really driving you towards is, is not just changing behaviors, but going to a correct heart fulfillment. So I'm there, I grab the sheets, and after, I'll just be honest with you here, cussing under my breath, things became ultra clear to me. And though, though most of us never get diagnosed, we all struggle with our own demons, right? Uh, some of them are just more acceptable, a bit more sanitized, more mainstream, and therefore they're less noticeable than other addictions. So my addictions were acceptable by most standards, but they were equally as deadly as the less sanitized counterparts. Mine were acceptable sins, not unacceptable sins. I walked out of the room, my stack of green sheets in hand, realizing I had a long road ahead of me. By my own estimation, I had, I think, 95 to 100% of the symptoms of several of the hurts, habits, and hang-ups referenced by CR. That's what they call all addictions, is a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up. But here's here's the key. I wasn't afraid, and I wasn't afraid if anybody knew about any of this. I wasn't afraid that owning the label, even, even all of the labels that I need to, might negate my worth as a person, or even diminish the calling that God had placed on my life. You see, at this point, I became confident that His love is unconditional, and that His acceptance his gifts, his calling, that all of those, just as the Bible says in Romans 11, 29, that they are irrevocable is what he says. Even if other people's approval of me or you is, our Heavenly Father's approval, acceptance, and calling, completely irrevocable is the word that he says. Uh, without repentance, without changing his mind, it's a decision that he's already made and it's done. And so you think about if he could work around Noah's drunkenness or Abraham pimping his wife twice 
if he could work around Jacob's ongoing deception, if he could work around Moses' anger management issues or David's adultery and murder or Peter's denials or Paul's murders, if he could do all of that, then he could certainly work around my green sheets, right? Or anything that you've got going on. That meant this, I just needed to work on my heart to continue doing the tough work of the soul, the inside job of uncovering the facets of uh, this word that I love is Imago D. It, it means the image of God. I needed to uncover the facets of the image of God that were already tucked inside of me. And as I did that, then more of the fruit that I wanted would just naturally emerge, not as a striving, but as a resting and a security in his presence. Now, during that long season of pulling all this together, weaving these ideas and applying them to my life, I texted my kid's mom. I, I, I typed out one night, I missed a lot chasing my empty dreams. There's nothing or very little to show for all that time away, all those missed moments, all those sacrificed seasons. You see, in the same way that those addicts that I referred to earlier have very little to show for all of their addicting behaviors, I actually had little to show for mine. You have no idea, she replied. You see, the irony of that is that I forfeited the very relationships which add the most value to my life by chasing things I hoped would fill my life with meaning and purpose. I remembered something I had read in my Enneagram book. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Enneagram is a spiritually based, ancient personality profile that really types people based on nine different personality categories. It's incredibly insightful, amazingly useful, and it's a book that I had read and studied a lot. I'll put a link down to the one that I prefer in the show notes. It's a great primer called The Road Back to You. So I remember reaching that night uh, to the shelf and grabbing that book and looking, and I almost went immediately to this quote because it was in the chapter about threes, which is the personality type that I, I think that I actually am. The quote is this, the relationships of spiritually unevolved threes, they suffer because they're almost all workaholics. They have so many projects remaining and so many goals to achieve that they can't give their undivided attention to the people whom they love. That was one of my sins of choice, workaholism. Now, as I read that, I remember always taking work with me on vacation, arriving late for dinner at least three or more times each week. Uh, regularly sending my wife to bed alone while I worked on my computer, pounding away at some project, uh, going with my boys on a Saturday morning sneak out, which if you've seen me on social media, the sneak out thing is one of my staples. But many times I would do it, uh, they would start reading books or looking at Legos, and, and I would just kind of slip into work mode as soon as I picked up a book, a blank journal, or even a little device. And the sneak outs never began that way, but they quickly became another opportunity to just put one to two hours into something. Now, why did all that happen? It happened because my heart had been attached to the wrong things. Uh, that Road Back to You book, okay, it's the Enneagram Primer I told you about, that threes, uh, when they're spiritually unhealthy, and the, and the goal's not to change your personality type, the goal was to express your personality type because God created you that way in a healthy way with your heart attached to the proper things. It says this, that the threes who are spiritually unwhole, quote, all believe the same lie. You're only as loved as your latest success. So, so as a result, 
they, they perform. I, I, I performed. You could kind of flip that quote and say it this way. You feel as unloved as your latest catastrophe or failure. And so looking back, goodness, I had a lot of those failures. And in large part, that's why I covered them. It's why I rarely asked for help because admitting I couldn't make something work was akin to confessing in my mind that something was wrong with me, that I wasn't worthy of love, that I wasn't valuable. So uh, I worked and pushed, and I did so. I cut corners to achieve. Uh, I plowed through people and their feelings in order to chase my dreams. I hid. I lied. I was addicted to finding my value, my self-worth, in externals, so I did the things addicts do. Instead of connecting to the right thing, I connected to the wrong things. Again, an addiction is anything that wrongfully takes the place of primacy in our hearts. So that night, via text, um, my kid's mom affirmed that she needed me, that our children desperately needed me, that they just wanted to be with their dad. That's why they would go to work with me, just to be near me, even when it meant the only time and attention they received was during the car ride back and forth to the office. That um, They approached me when I left earlier. I came back late from work because they desperately craved my affirmation. That's the kind of thing that addiction does. That, that is, it's what happens when anything takes the place of primacy in our hearts, that special spot that's reserved uniquely for the Creator. Our hearts remain restless until he alone resides there. And, and even after that, you know, let's just be honest, life still feels shaken sometimes, right? You know, life is good. But as this refrain says that's in this book that I put together, Claim Your Freedom, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can look farther. Life is good, but life is hard. Now, let me maybe tie this together with the last few talks uh, that, I, that I've done, because the question comes up, well, what does this have to do with emotional pain? Here's my thought. M- most of us, because of the three facts that I referenced in a previous talk, and that one fact about avoiding pain, okay, remember, we're designed to explore, but as we explore, fact number two was we bump into some pain. Those are the rules that Dr. Perkis taught me, and so as a result, number three, we create these rules, often hidden rules, some can be functional, some can be dysfunctional. Some can help us, some can hurt us. Okay, that, that one about pain, we like to avoid it. That's where those rules come for, from. Okay, we're not immune to things that create pain. We're not immune from things that cause trauma, but we like to avoid feeling it. Okay, so when we feel it, we cover it, and we often cling to other things. Uh, we fill the holes that the emotional wounds create with things that don't sting, with externals that feel good. Uh, Money, sex, drugs, yeah, those. But we also fill that void with things that aren't sin issues, things that are actually right and good, and even things like working in a ministry that are noble. And and then let me just really say this, that sex and money are noble with the right expressions, right? In In other words, here's what we do. We dodge doing the tough work of the soul, walking through the dark night until we see the sun once again rise on our lives. You think about, maybe as a comparison, instead of enduring the tough night and then seeing the sun and wading through the dark until that sun rises, it is so much easier to plug a fluorescent lamp into the wall and then just flip that switch on. So maybe think of some of the stereotypes that you've seen. Um, Recent divorcees become super fit. 
former addicts, take up new hobbies. Surviving widows or widowers, search for new relationships. The abused spouse becomes an advocate or an activist. Abandoned women and men become workaholics. Okay, I know, those are all cliches and I could keep going. And it seems kind of unfair to pin them like that because they're just stereotypes. The reality is that people come in all shapes and sizes and we choose our emotional fillers in our own unique ways. And there's this, like, let's just be honest, some of those activities that I just listed, they're bold. They're world-changing endeavors. We actually need more of them. But, and this is key, we need those activities that we enjoy in conjunction with the deep work of the heart, the hard work of digging the roots and renovating the cell from the inside out. Apart from that, there are unhealthy attachments filling a void that can't be filled by an external. Well, that's where I'd gone. Somewhere along the path, I tethered my heart to the wrong things or to say it probably in a better way to the right things in the wrong way. And it was time for me to discover or rediscover who I really was, to go back to the bottom, back to the beginning, to find myself overwhelmed by grace and to rewrite the story and uh, to rewrite it in the same way that I actually write books. This will circle the whole talk back full circle to the beginning to let it take as long as it takes, again, just like I do when I'm writing an actual book. And that requires, and here's what I'll talk about in the next talk, actually slowing, slowing into this unique rhythm of creation, slowing way down. Now, as we end, let me, let me conclude as I do every single talk, just praying and signing off. My prayer for you in this one is that the Lord blesses you, that the Lord keeps you, that the Lord makes his great face of incredible favor shine upon you. And as his face of favor, as his light shines, that that light penetrates every crack, every crevice, every dark place that's inside of your soul. Not to shame, not to condemn, because that's not what he does. He illuminates and he highlights for your freedom. He does so in grace and he does it for your good. And so my prayer is that as that light shines, that you would not be afraid of the labels, not be afraid of what's going on there, but knowing that he restores all things and all things are promised to work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose, who love him. And that, and somehow, in the economy of the kingdom, in the way that heaven works, means that even past mistakes, even past wrong heart attachments, out in 